0: Officers call.
1: So uh, let's uh, let's jump in. Uh, Welcome to Over There. This is the podcast about military history and activism in the age of Trump. My name is Terry Brennan. I'm an artistic
0: director and activist in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And my name is Matt Martin. I'm a retired Air Force officer, former drone pilot in Texas.
1: Nice. Now, I just realized that, um... <clears throat> I've, in the past, I've always been like, I'm an actor. And this week, I'm like, I'm an artistic director. I think I'm literally just going to name every day job I have. You so should. every week, it's like, eh, well, hey, I'm just a regular old septic commuter and an activist.
0: <laughs> well, that, that way you can you can uh, you know make a connection with everybody, right? Everybody exactly. Can, well, <laughs> everybody can relate.
1: A life in the arts will absolutely get you relatable. You're like, oh, I've had that job. I've uh, I've had that job too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, well, uh, so last week we talked a little bit to uh, John Roderick, and mm-hmm. that was a really interesting talk. The thing that I took away from that um, was when you talked about that. I'm sure. I'm sure it's not a class. You're gonna. I, I would like you to correct me. the 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 class. I'm gonna call it until you correct me. Where you learned all these different ways to to win wars and you learned all these things about like reaching out to the civilian population and learning the culture and winning hearts and minds. But, but Uh anytime you guys went to like, all right, so what are we going to do? Everyone's like, check it out. This is where I'm going to (laughs) bomb. That's right. (laughs) And what I thought was interesting, an interesting takeaway from that was uh, that, that, well, that, that essentially that since that's so readily available to us and it's so, And I don't want to sound callous when I say this, but since it's so effective for the purposes that the military is trying to achieve many times, that that's just the default. Instead of going to sinking a lot of time and energy into the other things you learned, everyone literally sort of leapfrogged to let me use technology to blow stuff up. Sure. Yeah. And I thought that that uh, that was really telling. It wasn't surprising to me that I think what was surprising is I didn't realize you guys spent the time learning that other stuff and then it was kind of saddening to hear that it so quickly uh goes away. And I under, I kind of understand that like it's the same reason that yeah. I say I'm going to walk somewhere today and I end up taking my car except in this particular situation like you're dealing with uh you know potential collateral damage in people's lives.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah uh w- w- it's true we are we are very quick to uh return to that which is familiar that w- that which we're comfortable with uh especially if you spent your whole life training to do a certain thing right use artillery or fly airplanes or or whatever uh and you know based on your situation and your role, there may be some tools that you get in those classes those those courses that uh you suddenly find yourself reaching for or that may be of particular Value in a, in a specific situation. I, I found that a few times in uh, in uh, Africa and in uh, Iraq and other places. Uh, but it's just it's just not your default position. You know, I've, I've been um, rewatching the Ken Burns uh, documentary series on Vietnam. It's so good. If you haven't if you haven't watched it, I, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, but it's it's just a, it's amazing how over the years we are we are, we you know we, we learn these lessons. And usually, there's a huge cost in learning these lessons, uh, you know, in terms of, in terms of blood and treasure, as we say. Uh, and then, how quickly we f- we we want to run away from those lessons and go back to that which is more comfortable.
1: Yeah, I guess when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, <laughs> as as they say, right? As as I think Confucius was like hammers and nails, bro. Yeah. So, um, uh, all right. Well, so talk to me a little bit about what you and John talk about this week.
0: Yeah. So, so we get more into a little bit of uh, of our experiences when John uh, toured Africa uh, with me a couple years ago, and then he talks a little bit about some of his experiences with uh, very senior personnel in the military. He's had, recently had a chance to spend some time with some four star admirals uh, as part of the seafare in uh, in Seattle, uh, and. He, he sort of had this realization that, hey, these are, these are actual humans, right? And they have, most of the time, they, they're kind of behaving like like regular people, and they have a regular person outlook, uh, but then they are entrusted with this, these, this incredible amount of, of uh, power and responsibility um, that, uh, that most of us can't quite imagine, right? Nuclear weapons and stuff. Uh, and, um, and how people like that who are given the responsibility to plan these wars and uh, try to execute uh, American strategy uh, are subject to the same, you know, human uh, foibles that, that we all are. And we should think about that when we ask them to, to act on our behalf.
1: No, that makes a lot of sense. So I want to throw something in really quick before we jump in, uh-huh. uh, which is that um, on the activism half of this podcast, we just had a lot of uh, elections across the country the other day. We sure did. Did you have any in Texas? Uh,
0: we only had the, um, the, the, Const- the constitutional amendment ballot measures, uh, all of which passed, and they were all pretty mild, you know, a lot of them about uh, disabled veterans being able to get breaks on their property insurance, which, you know, nobody's going to be opposed to that. So nothing too significant, certainly not any high visibility uh, uh, statewide offices like they had in other states.
1: Okay, well, that makes sense. I know that Virginia, New Jersey walked away with some uh, big Democratic gains in the governorship. But here in Philadelphia, where I live, one of the more exciting things that happened is that we we elected as our next district attorney, uh, a gentleman named Larry Krasner. Uh, And Larry Krasner is a a Black Lives Matter attorney. uh, And Mm -hmm. he's also sued the police department and the city a number of times. And he ran on a campaign that he wanted to clean up the criminal justice system By not enforcing, like... A lot of the the mandatory like the the lower level things he wants to get rid of cash bail for nonviolent offenses. (laughs) He wants to um, he really wants to sort of like turn things around. He wants to hold police more accountable uh, when there's a shooting involving uh, a civilian. And I think that uh, as we're going forward here, I know that like uh, about a year ago, I think we all we you and I have talked about this a lot, how we all woke up with some pretty heavy hearts and some (laughs) like not sure like where to go. Yeah. I think that while we still have a lot of work to do and I still have a lot of phone calls I got to make to my man, Pat Toomey, in Uh the United States Senate, uh, it is one of those things where it's nice to see that people are listening, uh, politicians are listening, and that we're making some some good progressive pushback. I think we have been talking for years about, like, we want to do this, we want to do that, we really want to change things up, but then we elect people who... Who, who, for the most part, might change things a little, but don't want to change things a lot, and then we get stuck in sort of a gridlock. So uh, similar to that class you were talking about where where there were all these strategies that were laid in front, and then the go-to was to bomb, 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 or invade. Yeah. I think that one of the things that we struggle with in this country is that we talk about a lot of criminal justice reform, but at the end of the day, a lot of DAs, prosecute 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 and cops arrest 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 Mm -hmm. and we've found that for things like for low level things like uh like possession of marijuana like there's no reason to lock somebody up for three months for possession of marijuana it's kind of a waste of our resources and it's also it there's a lot of research that says that that puts a number of people especially young black men on a collision course with the justice system and it's pretty easy just to say like So you have some weed. Here's a fine. And so I'm excited to see that that at least Philadelphia is going to be pushing forward in that a little bit and not digging really deep into arrest, arrest, arrest. I think we're going to try some other things and we'll see how it works out. Maybe it works out great. Maybe it doesn't I have a feeling it's going to fall somewhere in the middle.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, hopefully people are encouraged by these recent uh, gains and uh, stay engaged. And, and get out there and support their candidates. I'm going to keep working uh, to turn Texas District 24 here next year. And uh, I hope other people do the same.
1: Yeah, it, it is important, right? Because we're the only ones who can do the work, meaning yeah. like individual citizens. We can't hope that that someone else goes out and does some super voting or some super calling. <laughs> like right. we, have to, we have to stay engaged as individuals and kind of make these changes that we want to see.
0: Yeah. Absolutely.
1: All right. Well, with that, let's, uh, let's jump into this, uh, this Part 2 interview. I'm really excited to
0: hear what John has to say this week. Yeah, we'll do that. And, uh, and then in the meantime, Terry, I'll see you over there.
1: Yes, I'm actually looking over there right now, and, uh, and I'm going to say I'm going to meet you over there.
0: <laughs> you, you got it. All right. Over and out. Okay. Okay. <laughs>
1: Gun, get your gun, get your I had
2: a very interesting experience in Africa with you where you, you took me around and you were a Lieutenant Colonel at the time mm-hmm. and you introduced me to a handful of Lieutenant Colonel's. Um, in addition to, you know, I met a, a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, Navy master chiefs and a lot of, um, a lot of like sort of top NCOs in addition, yeah. but you, you introduced me to a handful of, of people that were, that were your peers. And we had, we had a few interesting conversations around the, around the campfire sitting around our musty smelling tents Uh uh, where you and your, and your peers were kind of, you know, sort of speaking candidly about your own jobs (laughs) and about the limitations on those jobs. Right. Like you've flown thousands and thousands, I think, uh, tens of thousands, or certainly certainly many many thousands of hours. Yeah, uh, over these combat zones, piloting predator drones, where you're both in an observing uh, observer role, but also you were these were armed drones. You were there in That's a right. combat uh, role. That's right. And and you're given a picture of what you're doing that is you have a certain scope and you're mm-hmm. not really asked to be performing that job conscious of a larger scope. Is that correct?
0: You're not, sort only, of, not only are you not being asked to be conscious of it, uh, you're, you, it, it's going to cause you trouble if you start asking a lot of questions about You know, the priorities that I mean, there were there were many times in Iraq where I was supporting an intelligence objective and very nearby. some we had some guys on the ground who were getting getting shot at. Right. Who who were who were under attack and who were calling for help. Uh, And I was I was not allowed to shift my mission from what from the intelligence objective I was looking at to go help these guys, you know, cause my, I was carrying hellfire missiles and, you know, I, if I could find who was shooting at these guys, I could, I could take them out and I could, I could maybe save these guys. Right. There are many times when, when I was not allowed to do that, uh, because somebody somewhere had made a priority decision, uh, and they, dis- they they, decided that, you know, the intelligence objective that I was prosecuting was, was more important.
2: So you did not have the, uh, you didn't have the air force, F4 jockey uh, <laughs> discretion to just say, like,
0: I'm going in. Right. No, no, not. not And, and there were a couple times uh, where I, I did that <laughs> and mm-hmm. I got into some trouble for it. <laughs> yeah.
2: And so not only that, but when we were in and I, you know, I, I suppose this is all also in the public record, but we were on bases in East Africa. Mm hmm where the where the and and one in particular that seemed literally carved out of um carved out of the jungle on a at the corner of an underused local airport mm-hmm. where we were looking at the at the position of this base and trying to imagine its strategic significance and the lieutenant colonel in charge of that base was again very vague Mm-hmm. not not willing you know i i think he he answered a couple of my questions by saying well look at where we are on a map uh-huh. <laughs> and then look at what's adjacent to us look uh-huh. at look at the circle that you could fly because a drone can fly out for 12 hours and back for 12 hours is Some that of or, yeah so the, what the,
0: the, MQ, the mq9 can can do that yeah so
2: you imagine a, a circle of operational capacity around this base that extends 12 hours of flight time in every direction, mm-hmm. that encompasses an awful lot of East Africa and also the Arabian Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, we're doing stuff out here. We got <laughs> stuff to do every day. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was like, well, that includes Somalia. It includes Sudan. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot happening in those places. There is. And he sort of, and, and listening to the two of you talk, it was clear that, you know, he was also witnessing a lot of strange stuff and also sort of not always tasked with intervening. But sometimes, I mean, who knows? (laughs) I, I did everything I could to get that information. And it was, everybody had a, had that same Cheshire grin that you guys give one another where I guess if I were, if I were in the air force, I would know what the hell you were smiling about. Right. But then earlier this year, and you and I haven't talked about this, but I was appointed to a ceremonial post here in Seattle,
0: uh, called King Neptune. Yeah, I was following your exploits on your, uh, on your Instagram account.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I presided as King Neptune over Seattle's Fleet Week. And I was there as this kind of, you know, somewhat comedic local personality. But I was invited to all of the Fleet Week events and was there uh, ostensibly in a VIP capacity. Mm-hmm. and And most of these fleet week events, you know the local dignitaries the the city councillor or whoever you know business people uh boosters of the navy and the military in general uh, but here I was uh, given this uh this sort of pride of place, and as you can imagine, Lieutenant colonel Matt martin, I exploited that <laughs> of course as you and, do and and what that did was it put me uh in very close proximity to flag officers. Mm -hmm. And I met in the course of that three week period, I met uh, a dozen Navy admirals and air force generals, um, including uh, three star Admiral Nora Tyson Hmm. and her boss, the four-star admiral who was uh, in charge of the Pacific Ocean. And I met the admiral who ran the uh, nuclear missile submarine base here Mm -hmm. at uh, Banger and over at Bremerton. uh, it it seems like there are dormitories just full of admirals (laughs) and in, in spending. And so they're at their somewhat, during Fleet Week, they're some sort of at their leisure. You know, th- these are events where they're being celebrated and there are cocktails and there are little hot dogs on toothpicks. hmm And so, they were able to be casual and I actually struck up a friendship with several of these people that felt like a genuine friendship. You know, Nora mm-hmm. Tyson ended up every time she saw me, you know, calling out and bringing me up on stage with her and... Yeah had her arm around me a lot in a very sort of congenial way Uh where we knew we were on a first name basis. And, and, um, and in getting to know them and talking to them a little bit, I had the very same experience I had with you and the officer corps that I met in Africa, which was, you know, I'm almost 50 years old
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and at the Lieutenant Colonel level, Uh, everybody was a couple of years younger than I was. Yeah. Right. You, you guys were all in your early to mid forties. That's right. And then, so that means that I'm about the age of, of a full bird colonel. Yep. And these generals and admirals were only a few years older than I was in their mid fifties to late fifties. Yeah. And, and into their sixties. And so Culturally, we shared a lot. I mean, these guys all watched Scooby-Doo when they were kids, just Mm -hmm. like I watched scooby Sure. We're all Americans uh, more or less about the same age. Uh And this lifelong awe that I've felt for military people, particularly with a star on their collar. Right. Just evaporated. Yeah. Realizing that these are just like regular... Joe's. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but in order, in my, in my personal experience, in order to become an admiral, you kind of have to be a little bit of a dope. I mean, they're, they're like, they're pretty square. Yeah. Right. Like they're all just sort of happily married and their sense of humor tends to be a little bit frat fratty. Yeah. And they're, and they're fun. They're fun fun people for the most part. I mean, you know, within, within the context of being fairly
0: square. Their ideas of a good time are a backyard barbecue.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Backyard barbecue. And they make like not very dangerously ribald (laughs) jokes about one another. Uh And uh, you can tell in most cases, it seemed like uh if the admiral was a man it was his wife that was really running the show i sure. met all their wives and they were really <laughs> you know they were like pretty powerful ladies uh huh and those guys are so, probably
0: helpless you know they would be helpless without their wives yeah largely helpless
2: without yeah. their wife and without their staff yeah but but i really given my experience in africa with you my takeaway in each of these instances was oh my god i don't want this person making Global political decisions because this person is like a dingling from the University of Maryland. <laughs> That's right.
0: Um, yeah. You, you know, my experience in the military as I got more senior uh, was that on the very rare occasion you would meet a colonel or a general who you thought, you know, even after spending a couple minutes with them, like, holy Toledo, I, I totally get it. I get why you're an admiral. This guy is brilliant. He's read all the books. He's thought deeply about this stuff. He has charisma. He knows how to lead. And it was almost always a hebe. Some, sometimes, some. You see some very senior women officers in the military who meet the script description, and we're getting more of them. I mean, Nora uh, Tyson was very impressive, right? Yeah. But um, those those individuals are, are are very rare, and and usually, you know, especially as I as I became a lieutenant colonel and and was uh, thinking about you know how I would make rank you know all the colonels and generals i was meeting i would have to say well huh okay this this is this is this is the guy right this is who yeah. we've chosen to do this uh okay i guess
2: well um, and and you know within within the military context right i mean i f- i find you to be a very um a very sort of you have a very wide ranging scope and yeah. you, and obviously very intelligent and self-educated in addition to being actually educated and that was true of of a lot of these characters too but i would see lieutenant colonels and colonels come up to these admirals and there was a there was although a friendly and convivial relationship there was also a lot of saluting and standing uncomfortably Sure. Not not sure exactly how much standing at attention they should uh-huh. be doing, uh-huh. but but certainly you know they were in that state of like, well, I'm not at attention, but I'm also standing next to a three star admiral, so That's I'm right.
0: more more at attention than I <laughs> normally would be. Right. Because at any time this guy's gonna turn to me and ask a question, and I'm gonna have to know something <laughs> or do something um, because this this is the this guy in charge, and we, we're gonna show him a lot of deference.
2: Right, right, but but uh, but me standing there with my with my sash and several medals that I had bought at thrift stores and converted into medals that I was wearing Mm -hmm. uh, as King Neptune. (laughs) Then the admiral would turn back to me and say, like, "Oh boy, my wife told me to get more hot dogs." You know, this kind of Yakov Smirnoff level of (laughs) of uh, of my wife jokes. Sure, and because because there because we could be peers, and I don't think these admirals typically have a lot of peers who aren't other admirals. They don't get out in the town
0: really. No, they don't. And they, they, you know, when they, when they get to actually talk to somebody, I think a lot of them find out, Hey, this is fun.
2: <laughs> yeah, they really did. So we, we, we struck up pretty like unusually close friendships. I had this four star admiral who all, who will remain nameless, lean in at a cocktail party and say, you know, I'm an introvert. <laughs> and it's very difficult for me to be a four-star Admiral and also yeah. be an introvert. These parties really, really t- yeah. take, take, away from me. Yeah. And I said, you know, Admiral, I'm also an introvert, but I get up on stage just like you and do these things for a few hours. And then I have to go back and take a bath. And he's like, I take a bath too. Huh. And we, and, and meanwhile, you know, there are all these other, I mean, you know, a four star, right. He's got like a circle of one stars around him that don't know whether to be at attention or not. Right. And he's like, you know, leave me alone. I'm talking about being an introvert with this weird guy and (laughs) with these medals that he, that he made himself, you know, he's like desperate for, for a little bit of like male friendship. Yeah. Uh, even, even just briefly. So, so it all solidified to me this sense that from the civilian perspective, we look at these people and their, and the jobs that they accomplish as Somewhat superhuman. I mean, they do have the ability to order people to their deaths. Yeah. And you know that they don't want to send soldiers to their death. You know that that, is, that, that hurts them
0: mm-hmm.
2: to do. But yeah. at the same time, it is the number one thing in their job description, more That's or right. less. Uh, ultimately, like, this is, the, this is the tremendous power
0: that we, that we uh, imbue them yeah. with. And they think about and, it all the time, and it's the thing that keeps them up at night. Right. But they are just regular people. Mm-hmm. And
2: with the with the regular, with the capital R, and I never got the sense that, I mean, because I asked a lot of penetrating questions about where they felt like their purview ended, mm-hmm. Parti- particularly if you're commanding like a, a base with... Multiple nuclear trident submarines, sure I mean those conversa- w- when the conversation is how long can your submarine stay underwater it's very he 's very excited to talk about it sure. right like you've I know for a fact you 've got a submarine that can send seals out the out a bottom hatch with the little with the mini submarine, and he's like <laughs> mm-hmm, i can't talk about this you know we're right. like we're loving it right yeah. But as soon as I say, like, at what level are you able to make independent decisions, um, about your submarines and what they're going and and how they project American power? Mm-hmm. You know, then it gets like real. Those little hot dogs on the on the toothpicks sort of wilt, and the and it gets very. It it's not it doesn't get tricky because they. Um, because they can't talk about it. It gets tricky because they don't know.
0: They, they don't the, know. And they suspect that, I mean, we, probably most Americans uh, think that it is more than it is. And, but for those individuals, it's probably more than they're comfortable with.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> so I guess my question to you and the one that you and I have tried to resolve before is what is the missing layer Where is there a missing layer of accountability, a missing layer of civilian authority? Mm -hmm. Um, What would that missing layer do? And how would we accomplish creating or empowering that missing layer? I mean, because it's not like the U.S. government lacks for layers. Right. So there has to be a layer that would be capable of both this this larger geopolitical understanding and also uh, again exerting civilian authority over this um over this like uh gorgon yeah. of the military or the cthulhu of our unleashed uh american power like what is that and why are they not more why do they not actually have the authority that it seems like
0: they ought to have? Man, that is a question. Uh, You know, on paper, if you read through the doctrine documents that the U.S. military publishes, all the joint publications, uh, on paper, that, that enterprise is the State Department, the National Security Council, the National Security Agency, and the way that that influence is supposed to express itself in each country is the teaming together of the military and the embassy team and USAID and non-governmental agencies and, and all of these other players uh, that are are supposed to be part of this team. And they are supposed to work together through this very formal process that is outlined in these thousands of pages to carry out this national security strategy. Uh, But it um, it and despite the fact that we send you know we send all of our officers to all of these fancy schools and give them all of these staff assignments and they certainly don't lack for exposure to those elements of government we don't do it uh hmm. and and there's you know who who is to say why in America we just we just we we are just drawn to this this military aspect of the expression of nat- national power and and e- even though, and we, we spend all of our money on it, and and even though it is not the thing that mostly defines our interactions with the world, it's the first thing we think of, uh, and it's it's the the thing we first turn to whenever we have real problems.
2: Well, let me ask you this: When we were in Niger, mm-hmm. uh, you took us one night to the American embassy, or yeah. I'm sorry, to the embassy, but then also then to the ambassador's residence. That's right. And we met the American ambassador to Niger uh-huh. and she was very gracious. We had a, we had a strange sort of party. We performed there at the embassy. <laughs> and
0: you, uh, you say she party. Gave... <laughs> she, she, she had invited hundreds of people, right?
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah most,
0: yeah. mostly, uh, so most of the embassy staff, as well as uh, all of the key individuals from the Nigerian government.
2: And just, it seemed like tribal leaders. I mean, it was. Tribal uh, leaders, sure. It was a big party, and there were a lot of, lot of people there, and we were presented uh, with ceremonial gifts <laughs> uh-huh. uh, made in the local, uh, uh, out of local handicrafts. Mine was a uh, a uh, a thing where you would set hot pots down in your kitchen uh-huh. made out of uh, bottle caps from local beer and pop uh, wow. brand, brands. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I still have That's it. That's great. <laughs> But so in this breakdown that you're talking about, this, uh, the, all the, this paperwork that, that, uh, that suggests this coordinated effort. Yeah. Would that American ambassador within the, within the hierarchy have authority over the American military that was operating in the territory of the country where she was the chief American representative
0: Uh, with a couple of very specific uh, exceptions. No way. Absolutely not.
2: Right. (laughs) Right. So, so here is, here is the embassy, which is, you know, the, the, uh, the space which America has, has explicitly located in the foreign capital saying, here is our, here's the, the, the like acre the square acre of the United States of America that we're installing here in your nation. And we're we're installing a representative of our government. But over here on this neighboring Air Force base, there is a um there are a bunch of you know, there's like a like a, a dozen square acres bristling with weapons. Yeah. And the ambassador has not only no no authority, but is really not, contrib- not contributing any... Uh, she has no role in the expression of that, of that power within the country where she presides.
0: Yeah, I, I wouldn't go quite that far. You know, in every embassy, there is a military staff, and there is uh, someone called a defense attache, and that person... Usually, in a small country, it's a lieutenant colonel. In a larger country, it's a colonel, or or like a key ally, like you know Germany or England, it's going to be a, a multi-star general. Uh, and that multi that that defense attaché, that person's job is to liaise uh, between the, the embassy, the ambassador, and all the elements of the military that are in the country. Uh, typically, starting at the top. You know, and working its way down. And so I got to know the defense attache in Niger uh, quite well, and we worked together on a lot of things. Uh, a lot of it had to do with security concerns, you know, how we would protect the, M- the embassy staff if they had problems, et cetera, uh, and, you know, intelligence sharing and, and things like that. Uh, but so in, in theory, the ambassador, the defense attache can go to the very top of the combatant command structure. And if the if the uh, ambassador to Niger had a real issue and and she didn't think she could handle it at the, you know, at the local level, you know, there was absolutely nothing stopping her from picking up the phone and calling the four star AFRICOM commander whose headquarters is in Germany. Uh, and saying, hey, general, I need this thing. What are you doing? You know, your guys are running amok or whatever, whatever her concern was. And that would be taken very seriously. Right. And that would typically result in that four star general or or one of his delegates coming down to the country and sorting things out. Right. Uh, And then, of course, uh, you know, uh, sort of part of normal operations, the defense attache and his or her staff works with the key military leaders in the country to continue to work on whatever the U.S. uh, team country is uh, approach is supposed to be in that country. Uh, But it's it's not a direct line of of influence. I mean, the ambassador can't order anybody in the U.S. military to do anything. Uh, Mm -hmm. All all he or she can do is ask nicely.
2: But 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 crucially, that Um, that exchange does not flow the other direction or it isn't reciprocal in the sense that the four-star general of AFRICOM is not uh, looking at the situation where uh, Al-Qaeda and Boko Haram are sort of uh, intruding into Niger. Mm -hmm. He doesn't call the ambassador and say, what do you know about these areas? Who is... Uh, who, how do yeah. we go into this, you know, like, give me your local expertise.
0: Yeah, that, that, uh, that conversation would happen from time to time because they, they visit each other and make office calls and stuff. But typically that's, that happens at a lower level, right? The staffs are talking to each other. Right.
2: So <laughs> that is how it is. That, that's how it is effectively. I mean, uh-huh. you know, that, that's how it is by default. but but written in to the, to the ideal sit- situation. Um, it, uh, obviously we don't want like political appointee ambassadors of countries having authority to order the U S military around, right. Conducting their little, you know, running the country like a little fiefdom, uh-huh. but, but there doesn't a seem to, there doesn't seem to be any accountability. Like, I'm not sure where the accountability structure is to a, you know, I, I, guess, I guess as an egghead, uh-huh. I often mistakenly believe that the eggheads are noble and that all these people at American universities that spend all their time studying um, the culture, let's yeah. say, of a place. And understand how difficult it is, primarily how difficult it is to nation build. Yeah. And would look at a situation in Iraq and say, well, on the Arabian Peninsula, there is not a real long tradition of democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say none. And, uh, and so there are certain obstacles culturally to establishing democratic government in a place where there is no cultural history of democratic government there is no uh there there doesn't appear to be any advantage to democratic government to them uh-huh. and the uh the corruption that we think of as en- endemic corruption is in a lot of cases not it doesn't even qualify as corruption because it is it's just so uh Intrinsic to what we would, you know, where, where corruption trends into just the culture of authority mm-hmm. is a real uh,
0: blended line. Yeah, and you would have to know an awful lot about each one of these countries to really understand that.
2: To understand it, but but at a at a at a from a global perspective, from a United Nations perspective, uh-huh. there. I mean, there are people who are able to say, just as you, just as you're describing at the end of Vietnam, this realization that, oh, counterinsurgency does work, Yeah, but it's really hard. Mm-hmm. So we don't <laughs> like it. So we're going to ignore it.
0: Right. And if you were going to come here, you had better be prepared to do all of these things. Mm-hmm. And if you are not prepared to do, you had, you had better understand exactly what it's going to cost. And it's going to be a lot. And if you are not ready to bear that cost, then you should really rethink your strategy. There, there are people who could <laughs> right. say that, right? There are people right, who right. could express that thought. Right. Uh, but those are not the people who are, who are planning these operations.
2: And so we, we're caught in this cycle, vicious cycle, of choosing repeatedly to, to pursue a, a course which we know does not work mm-hmm. because it's easier than to do the thing that we know or suspect would work. It's, it's easier. And I cannot divorce myself from thinking that it's both easier and more fun. It's certainly more, it's certainly more profitable, but it's also like, there's, you know, it's way more cowboy to set to send the super cobras in than to send one, you know, like a, like somebody in a, in a seersucker suit, And like three three people with clipboards in, (laughs) let let alone somebody that speaks the local language.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I I, I understand exactly what you're saying. Uh, I mean, I would I wouldn't describe it that way. Uh, I would describe any 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 of those uh, military operations as as cowboy. I I certainly didn't feel that way when I was, uh, you know, uh, employing deadly force from the air uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, I uh, I, 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 I didn't I didn't find it to be fun. It was, to a certain extent, stat- satisfying, especially if you are, you know, doing something like covering a convoy and the convoy is taking fire and the guys are on the ground are getting shot up and you are able to, uh, to, you know, help get them out of that situation. That's super satisfying. Right. Um, but yeah, you're you're right. Um, I help, think the larger help them point- out of
2: that situation by firing. Multiple Hellfire missiles, <laughs> and watching, uh, like a whole a whole section of the desert turn into fire for a for a moment.
0: For for a for a moment, right? Let's and, call it what and, it is. That's right, and and yeah. killing multiple individuals who are uh, shooting at your guys. Yeah, that I mean, right. that's yeah, that's right. We shouldn't be euphemistic about this. Uh, but um, I, I think the larger point is that um, you know the, the the people who are making these decisions uh, and who are planning these operations. Um, you know, they they have background and experience uh, which informs them as to what they think will work and what wasn't what won't work. And the things they think will work are things that they spent their whole lives, their whole adult lives training to do.
2: Right. Right. And they don't take their job lightly. Yeah. Uh, But there is. But as we keep touching on. It isn't effective. Yeah. Um, except in creating like, well, what we have now is the longest war in American history.
0: Right. With, with, with not, not only no end in sight, but no plan to end it, no idea what the ending of it would look like, uh, no understanding of what we would have to achieve in order for us not to have to do that stuff anymore. Right.
2: Early on in the war, it seemed like conventional wisdom was that the end of the war would look like the the elimination of dictatorship in the Middle East, the establishment of peaceful democracy, the economic development of those countries so that they became flourishing garden states Uh and a global new world order. Where um, love of American style democracy and economic and trickle down economics created a century of prosperity uh-huh. uh, that everyone called the American century, and that um, that these uh, that these nations mm-hmm. which had been which had been laboring under these oppressive dictatorships would be liberated and would then, I guess, flourish in the arts and, um, like that really was a, a notion that motivated neoconservatism. Yeah. But that seems 100% gone from the conversation now. And yeah. it has turned entirely to eliminating the bad guys, ISIS right. and so forth. And, and somewhere back in the monkey brain, of this, of our, of our national idea of this global intervention is that if we can eliminate the bad guys, then all of this garden flourishing can take place. But until we eliminate these, whatever, 10,000 guys driving around in Toyota Hilux pickups. That's right. Until we eliminate them, this whole other thing this massive sort of gaia bomb that of culture that we were intending to drop on these <laughs> on these poor countries yeah uh that all has to take a back seat because at, right now we have to eliminate this this uh this overwhelming threat and none of that other stuff can can happen yet right so much so that we've forgotten about it we don't talk about it even <laughs>
0: Right. And, and, you know, at a certain level, the people in the U.S. military understand that that, that's That's uh, that's hogwash, right? That there's just nothing to that idea. And that's why they are busy building. You know, the president of the United States is not the one who's deciding to build a huge uh, unmanned aircraft base in northern Niger or any other base that we're, you know, we're spending millions of dollars on these places, building runways uh, and, you know, installing sewer lines and uh, communications lines in order to establish a capacity to conduct military operations. And, you know, these are not temporary structures, right? They may be mostly tents that people are sleeping in, but, you know, we're building these things to last. And so at a certain level, you know, the the, the middle level of leadership in the U.S. military understands that we're not going anywhere. And as long as we're not going anywhere, then we need to be able to do these things and, and make it possible to do these things. Might
2: but as yeah, well have I think, showers,
0: right? That's right. We'll have showers and internet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and food that's not going to make us sick, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I think you're right at, at, a, at a larger level, at the political level, and in the wider population. There's this anticipation that we're going to win somehow, and right. then we can be done with this stuff.
2: Right, we're going to win over an entire like population's religion. Yeah, we're going to defeat the we're going to defeat the tenants of their religion. Yeah, and we're going to replace their. Thousand year old culture, yeah. Uh, with our like infinitely superior culture, and presumably, in many cases, our infinitely superior religion,
0: right? Uh, If we can just get rid of (laughs) ISIS and Al Qaeda and Boko Haram and Al Shabaab and the Shiite militias and whoever else, right? If we could just get rid of those guys then then they'll like us, and they'll want to be like us, and everything'll be great
2: right, and we have no and the 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 neoliberals and the neoconservatives, all of the people that went to Penn State that are driving this- mm-hmm. we recognize that within Islam, the vast majority of people, just like within Christianity, are moderate uh, they they sit down to dinner with their families, and everybody uh, tells jokes about their, about the uncle that, that wasn't able to make it to dinner. Uh-huh. I mean, they're just regular people with, re- and their religion is no threat to us because it's, because it is practiced one day a week or, yeah. you know, or maybe, maybe, uh, maybe everybody prays before they go to bed, but it isn't some, it isn't fanatical. That's right. the, that's the neoliberal idea mm-hmm. that we can create these garden economies where uh, each one of those families has a new television set, but their Islam, you know, their, their, the, the fact that they're Muslims is really no different. And, and so there's this fundamentalism. Right. And that is, that is as, the fundamentalism is more of a threat to the local, to the potential that these local communities would develop a suburban American culture. Like ISIS is more of a threat to them than it is to us, right? Um, and that's our that is our justification for intervening. And there is no sort of recognition that people, young people, are joining Al Qaeda, are 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 propelled into these organizations by you know for reasons that are incomprehensible to us, or mm-hmm. certainly not under our influence, right? In our initial Uh, exchange when you and I first met and I I'd been talking about drone warfare on the on our podcast and you said speaking as someone who has spent thousands of hours uh, flying over these countries engaged in war I think that you don't I think that your idea is wrong yeah (laughs) but what I was saying in that podcast was that as we have increased our technology our our war fighting technology, one of the main motivations of the military is to limit casualties Mm -hmm. to us, limit American
0: casualties. Absolutely.
2: Continue to project power, increase our ability to uh, wage war overseas whilst simultaneously limiting or eliminating our, you know, uh, the spilling of American blood. Yeah, And I was saying what that had done or what that was in the process of doing was converting war into a thing that, you know, cause formerly war had a, had a tremendous cost in both blood and treasure. Yes. And that was an inhibiting factor, right? You didn't go to yep. war, uh, because there was, there was this tremendous cost. That's right. And, and public opinion could turn against you. And that was another um, pressure on the military and on the civilian leadership to limit these conflicts. Mm -hmm. But this technology now was converting war into something that had, that required very little blood Mm -hmm. and just required more and more
0: treasure. Um, So this is a, this is a very commonly held view. Right, the, yeah. the, the drone technology in particular makes war so easy that our leaders will not hesitate to, to engage in it.
2: Right. And um, an American civilian population no longer has a clear picture of what's happening. We're just imagining these drones flying over the, uh, the, the Afghan Kush right. and eliminating um, bad guys. And every once in a while, a Hellfire missile hits a wedding party, or maybe not maybe they're lying. Yeah. Uh, but either way, we're, we're very remote
0: from, from the blood. That's right. And and I, I, I took issue with that. Yeah, you did. (laughs) And I, and and I, and I I still do. Um, but, but to an extent, I think there, I think there is some of that. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in addition to, uh, reducing the risk to us troops, which, by the way, is not the primary reason that we use this technology, although it is, it is a, a very significant consideration. Uh, in, in addition to that, um, one of the reasons we use this, this technology is that it, it, it has inherent with it the global distribution of video and data that are coming from the airplanes and going to various intelligence centers and various headquarters and various command centers so that they could understand what's going on, make better decisions, and one of the effects of that is that our senior leaders are now watching these combat operations in real time and seeing exactly what is going on, what exactly the result of their decision was. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think we're all familiar with that very famous photo of Obama and the rest of the uh, the cabinet and key national security staff during the bin Laden operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the key things, two, two key things on that is the, the, the dour look on. Uh, Obama's face uh, and the the sight of Hillary Clinton holding her mouth, gasping, you know, shocked at what she is seeing. Right Uh, now,
2: are they watching like helmet cams on the uh, of the actual SEAL Team 6 exercise?
0: my, My guess is they're 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 looking at multiple video feeds during that operation. Some of them are the body cams of the of the the SEAL guys going in. But I'm sure they were looking at uh, some sort of full motion video feed from some type of aircraft overhead that was also monitoring it, right? And so you're seeing muzzle flashes and explosions in addition to, you know, the the thermal images of people moving around. Uh, So so, now
2: there's a clear, I think there's a major difference between watching that happen and infrared cameras from an orbiting Predator. Yeah. And actually watching body cams of guys going up the stairs. And I know you can't like say for sure what it is, but do you do you think that there was on that screen with, you know, as as they're watching this operation? Are they actually in the room with those guys, the president of the United States and the and the secretary of state?
0: Yeah, I I think they were watching real time that operation right from those different different sources, seeing seeing probably half a dozen different video feeds. Wow. Uh, right. And and you know so and you know my experience flying on the aircraft is not that it removes me from that action but that it brought me a lot closer to it, right? Uh-huh. And even even if the thing that you're looking at is a grainy infrared image of some kids playing in a, you know a courtyard or some woman hanging out the laundry or some insurgent fighters moving around, right? You you your human you know your human instinct instantly identifies with that, right You instantly have an emotional connection to the thing that you are watching, and you immediately understand you know what the impact of what you're doing is uh, and If you watch it for a long time, you get emotionally in, invested in in these people uh just like when you watch a movie, right these are fictional characters on a screen, and yet we have these deep emotional relationships with them right and you know, if, if the hypothesis that, um, that, you know, drone warfare leads to more war was true, we would be seeing more war or more, more overt war or, you know, something like that. But of course, uh, since the invasion of Iraq, most, you know, Obama was trying to get out of Iraq. Uh, everybody's trying to get out, you know, wants to, to reduce America's role in the world. And when these, these kind of things happen, um, be, you know, one of the things that special operations allows you to do is, is maintain a strict secrecy about these operations. When it comes out, we're all horrified. Right. And we wonder what the hell we're doing there.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that is part of what we're talking about is on the one hand, there does seem to be a lot of desire to limit the scope of our involvement and, and back out. Mm -hmm. But there also seems to be never ending engagement and constant sort of strange, like additional proliferation. Just, just, I mean, that was what was so shocking to me about the fact that we had three years ago, four years ago, tent bases in Africa, and now Mm -hmm. we're building concrete bases in Africa. Right. I mean, the, the, the Navy base in Djibouti, is extraordinary. <laughs> it yeah. is like talk about guys with beards walking yeah. around, but there are also fighter pilots and uh, like, I mean, there's Japanese air force there. I couldn't even, I didn't even realize it oh, yeah. was a Japanese air force, <laughs> uh-huh. let alone that it was in Africa.
0: Yeah. We went from a, from a situation, you know, when we, when, when after nine 11, all this stuff was st- still in its infancy to launch a major operation in Afghanistan and then in Iraq, you had to have you know huge operation and at one point we had two hundred thousand Americans in Iraq and one hundred and fifty thousand Americans in Afghanistan, uh, and thousands of casualties and billions of dollars spent on a daily basis uh, we've gone from and we were horrified by that, and so we've gone from that to four thousand Americans on the whole continent of Africa, eight thousand Americans in Afghanistan, five or six thousand in Iraq all spread out among small outposts forever.
2: And you attribute some of that to the immediacy of war that, that uh, drone surveillance has, has given the upper brass. Right.
0: The, they, they, they are now very reluctant to, in, to launch large military operations. And so they are using these tools to conduct the smallest operations that they can uh, to still, you know, be working towards their strategy.
2: Now, when you were uh, sort of in conclusion, let's let me ask you a question. Uh-huh. When, when you were flying these missions on a daily basis in a in a war zone. Yeah. Were you uh, were you being tactically applied by commanders on the ground? Would a captain call you up and say, we need fire support and have the ability to sort of laser point you onto a target? Or were you always being employed strategically by someone, you know, in a trailer in Nevada?
1: Uh,
0: So it was almost always the former, right? It was almost always you were going to either support these special operations, uh, in which case go to this location and check in with this forward air controller uh, who was sitting in in a trailer, not in Nevada, but in Iraq somewhere. Uh, and point your camera where this person says and, you know, do whatever this person says. But that person is probably a staff sergeant, right, a middle level NCO. Uh, or it was, you know, go here where this convoy is moving along and protect them. And when you do that, you check in on the radio with the convoy commander who's a captain or lower and uh, provide them direct support. But almost always it was direct support to some, you know, the, the, the majors the Lieutenant colonels, the, the colonels back at the headquarters were deciding which airplanes were going to support which ground teams. Uh, but to actually carry out the mission, you know, you were going to go check in with those guys, talk to them on the radio and support them directly.
2: And so in the process of this over the course of months and, and years, did you develop, uh, familiarity with individual soldiers and and commanders? Did you develop relationships with them over, over the radio as you were, as you were working these operations?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now I never got to know who they you know, who they were personally, right? I didn't know who their, what what their names were, where they lived or any, anything about them beyond, beyond what we were doing. Uh, You know, I knew them by their call sign uh, and their location and what units they were attached to. But yeah, over the radio, we you use this chat system where you're chatting to them like instant messaging uh, and you're spending, you know, hours with them every day. <laughs> so uh, wait, you're,
2: te- you're texting with, a, with a, uh, somebody, a soldier on the ground?
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. So they would, he's, you know, the, he's the, texting <laughs> you. <laughs> huh? Yeah. Well, it's a chat system, right? So it's not like he's on his phone. Uh, he has a laptop. And on the laptop, he's getting the video stream from the aircraft. And then he's got a little chat window opened up and we are chatting each other back and forth because that's a, a quicker and easier means of communication than talking on the radio. Is it really? Yeah.
2: So he's like, uh, red leader, this is Bravo six. Uh-huh. And you, and you recognize, uh, Bravo six and you're like, Hey, what's up Bravo six? You know, yeah. like uh, from day to day, That's right. you guys are. You're like World of Warcraft players who, who meet up in a chat room every day.
0: Uh-huh. That's, that's, that's I mean, right. Uh, you know, it, it was certainly no game, but yeah, absolutely. And you would but, get the, we call this, a, a, we call this a, a habitual association, right? You would be, you would work for the same unit every day and talk to the same individuals.
2: But you're in a position where you're actually looking at them through a camera.
0: Yeah. That's right uh they, they they they
2: and they are looking up and in the in the very far up in the sky, they hear a sound and
0: they can see you yeah, maybe if it was quiet, if they were out in the middle of nowhere, there's no background noise, uh, they could probably hear the airplane and may catch a glimpse of it if they get if it reflects off the sunlight, but it's up at twenty thousand feet, so they almost never see the airplane
2: you're really, really high up there yeah um. And so did you get, so that you could look at the infrared signature of a man on the ground and recognize
0: individual people that you saw all the time by their body English? You you could, you could definitely tell the difference between U.S. troops, you know, army guys and everybody else. Uh, You know, there's in in infrared, somebody who's wearing body armor uh, and carrying a lot of gear. They look different in infrared. They have a different heat signature. They move differently. Right. So you could, you could. You very easily tell that, uh, and then yeah, you would get to recognize the lead vehicle in convoys where your guy was, uh, and then from time to time you would actually see the person that you're that you're talking to.
2: Wow! Yeah, uh, I mean that's extraordinary, and and obviously yes, a different level of engagement from from flying an A four over the jungle and hearing a guy go red leader, this is Bravo six, you know, Mm -hmm. put napalm down on the tree line. Right. And you just kind of come in and lay it down and hope it worked. And yeah, Bravo six goes,
0: thanks red leader. Right. Or, you know, in the old days, you know, in Vietnam, those B-52s just drop in 55 (laughs) dumb bombs from 35,000 feet. (laughs) Right. Right. And just (laughs) like,
2: hope they land in that zip code. Right.
0: (laughs) That's right.
2: Wow. Yeah. Well, Matt, I hope uh, this is, uh, this has been super informative and I hope that we are able to, uh, talk on a semi-regular basis. I feel like you have a lot of insight and as the, as this situation continues to unfold or as it pops up in other places, there's a lot of insight you can provide, I think, to a general audience that, that they don't have exposure to otherwise.
0: Yeah, and you know, we didn't we got a little bit far afield from talking about what we actually saw and heard in in Niger, and so maybe we maybe we can come back to that.
2: Well, yeah, there's a lot I mean, there's a lot we can talk about in Niger and a lot um, you know, hopefully that situation doesn't escalate into a, a full-blown conflict, but it almost yeah. certainly will.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to we're We're, you know, if, if you were an American general and a bunch of your guys just got killed, you know, your response is not, Oh, I need to get my guys out of there. Right. Your response is probably, I need to get more guys in there and right. get control of this situation. Right.
2: Right. Well, <laughs> uh, um, so you and I will talk offline and try and find a way that we can, uh, periodically give people this, uh, your, I mean, your level of, uh, insight into the situation. I think it's really yeah.
0: valuable. That will be, that would, that would be a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, I agree. All right, well, okay. uh, see you I'm next so time. <laughs> you got it. Thanks a lot,
0: John. <laughs> yeah.
2: Send the word, send the word to beware. We'll be over, we're coming over. And we won't come back till it's over, over there.